Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hola. Bonjour. Guten Tag. Hola. I just did that. Oh, did you? Moi? Hey. Hey. Yeah, it's Scandinavian. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay. Let's see this, let's see this one more time. But do it like you know what you're doing. Come on. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I've never done it before. Welcome to the normal, not normal podcast with myself, Oliver Phelps. <laughs> Who's not normal. And me, James Phelps. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Today, we are going to be continuing this, this series, this new journey we're on, in finding out what it is to be normal, if normal even exists. I'm actually blown away right now because my idea of normal has gone totally out the window because, as you can tell, we are not joined by my brother. We are joined by someone who looks like he's trying to sell you a house. For those listening, not watching, uh, I decided to, since I've now got a short haircut, and I've conformed to the man. I thought I would wear a, um, a, a shirt and tie and a waistcoat to um, look a bit more dapper. There you go. But anyway, why have you... You're, I'm dressed like this. You're dressed like you're about to go and preach on a mound to uh, tell people how to live or something. So I don't think... What's, what's, the, what's the parable? Don't, don't throw stones from glass houses. I don't need to throw stones with glass hands. I am dressed like I would do any day in my house, you see. Um, <laughs> would you, I bet you're wearing slippers, aren't you? Sandals you'll be got on. Hang on. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Slippers on. I'm not even going to dispute that fact because I'm in my own house and I'm being very, very relaxed about it. This is my normal. Going back on topic to today's show, and we've been very, very lucky to be joined by today's guest. I can't, can't wait to listen to everything that she's got to say. So yes, today we are joined by Seven Suzuki, who possibly did the most passionate speech you will ever hear um, about climate change. So Seven was described as the original Greta Thunberg and at the age of just 12, Seven addressed the UN conference in 1992. So she spoke in front of all the world leaders about the impacts of climate change and called them out on it. And she was known as the girl who silenced the world for five minutes. So before we begin, let's listen to a part of this speech that Seven gave all those years ago in 1992. Hello, I'm Severin Suzuki speaking for ECHO, the environmental children's organization. We've raised all the money to come here ourselves, to come 5,000 miles to tell you adults you must change your ways. I am afraid to go out in the sun now because of the holes in our ozone. I am afraid to breathe the air because I don't know what chemicals are in it. 
I'm only a child and I don't have all the solutions. But I want you to realize, neither do you. You don't know how to fix the holes in our ozone layer. You don't know how to bring back an animal now extinct. And you can't bring back the forest that once grew where there is now a desert. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. Do not forget why you are attending these conferences, who you're doing this for. We are your own children. My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us, but I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Thank you. I've seen your speech I don't know how many times, and it's, it's this day is one of the, the best ones I've ever seen. Wow, thank you. I first heard it as an audio. I hadn't actually seen the video um, until actually a few weeks ago. And what's actually amazing is you see how, how many people... So I imagine those conferences are incredibly boring for all people concerned there because they're just listening to world leader after world leader. And you, like, you can see them in, the, in their eyes. They're like, oh, and they're all paying attention. And then you get some guys giving you a standing ovation at the end. So it really um, it, it just shows how you connected with everybody in that room and on a wider scale of the world. Were you always passionate about nature? Like what got you involved in that beforehand? Um, what brought you to that moment? So I absolutely adored animals, of course. Um, however, growing up in the 80s, I was hearing about problems with the environment. Also, my parents themselves were becoming environmental activists. Um, and so, of course, you know, as a little kid, I started a club um, to try to you know, learn a bit more about these environmental problems. And after a few years, we heard about this huge gathering that was going to be held, convened by the UN in Rio de Janeiro to talk about environment and development. And we thought, wow, there's going to be all of these old men coming together <laughs> and making decisions that would ultimately affect us and young people all over the world. There should be people there to remind them who their decisions would ultimately affect well, why don't we go? So we organized ourselves and we fundraised. And to make a long story short, we ended up um, making it to the Earth Summit in Rio. That is that is very good. And do you find as well, though, that being younger, that that gave you that no fear at the time? Absolutely. And when I look back at the speech that I gave um, so long ago, today I'm like, who is that? Who does she think she is? <laughs> Um, it's it's quite amazing to think about how righteous and passionate and certain I was. You know, it's different for me now because now I'm definitely an adult. You know, I'm a mom. Um, there's a different energy that young people have, and and we need we need that energy. We need them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you so when you decided to give the speech, how did you? even get on the platform i can't imagine it's that easy to just rock up and walk on the stage in front of the most powerful countries on earth well we from the very beginning we had to learn how to make a pitch for money people started making small donations at the outset which is what made us realize hey this idea really could work um and then uh yes it was my mom tara Collis who took us aside and said okay 
You want to raise money? You want to go to real? Well, you got to actually make make a pitch. You got to learn to give a speech. You got to learn how to um, make posters for an event. You got to learn how to rent out a hall with funds you don't have yet. You know, if you want to do this, let's make a plan. And so we were able to raise the money. That was one big part. It took us over a year, and then we went to Rio. Now we were nobodies. We didn't have um, connections. We had this little space where we could put our banner, our homemade banner up, uh, where we had uh, photocopied pamphlets that we'd cut, you know, printed out and cut out and photocopied and, um, and where we could speak to people milling about. And amongst the five of us, we spoke um, four different languages. So we're able to speak to um, many different people. We thought that we would have a hard time because we were so young. But what we actually found was people were intrigued. There were thousands of people at, the, at this uh, global forum there weren't too many children. We started getting invitations to side events because we were talking to people, we were doing interviews. Um, my father started getting invited to speak at different venues because he is an environmentalist, uh, a well-known environmentalist, and he would always give us 20 minutes at the end of his speech to say our message. He'd say, the reason I'm really here is because of my children, and he'd give us a platform and we'd be able to speak. And so after two weeks of this very hard work, I mean, we were there from you know, sun up to sundown, um, and then doing homework afterwards every day. every day for two weeks. And we got very uh, practice. We learned how to, we, we knew how to make speeches. We knew what our message was. So it was actually the last day we were scheduled to be in Rio that we got a phone call from the UN. Someone had dropped out of the plenary session and James Grant of UNICEF um, had happened to be at an event that we'd spoken at, a side event we'd spoken at, He'd bumped into Nomori Strong, who was a Canadian, who was secretary general of the event, who said, hey, someone's dropped out of the plenary. And, you know, James Grant said, hey, well, there's these kids, these Canadian kids who would be great. And so we got a phone call, you know, get down to the UN. You'll have five minutes, you know, get here and like, you know, right now. And so we jumped in a cab. We were in a screaming Brazilian taxi going, weaving through traffic. And I remember we were trying to compile all of our message into the ultimate message um, in the backseat of the taxi. We decided, you know, my speech was the most comprehensive of our message. This is what, um, you know, I would give the speech. And and uh, then we just ran into the UN. We had to get through all the security. There's military all over the place, machine guns. It was quite alarming, but we didn't have time to pay attention. So we got through security <laughs> and literally raced into the plenary and up to the front to give my speech. But by that time, you know, all of the energy, all the preparation had gone into that moment. And you can tell when you watch, watch the speech, it's, I mean, it's one of the best deliveries that I've ever done. And it's because we were prepared. We were ready for that moment. We were ready for the opportunity and the opportunity presented itself. So when you came off the stage after giving the speech, did you, did anyone let you know what they, what they thought of it and how they, how they took the message on board? Is there anyone who stands out in your mind uh, even now? Well, there was one man who came right over and shook my hand and um, said that was the best speech given at this conference. So I kind of absorbed this and then I sat down and people were still clapping. And then my dad leaned over and he said, um, do you know who that is? And I said, no. He said, oh, that, that's Al Gore. He's a senator. He's a really good guy. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> When all that happened and 
Dan, did you know how important it was and at home, what was what was it like? When I got home, it was actually in between elementary school and high school. And so I was right in between those two, uh, th- those two education periods. So starting at a new school um, to start my kind of youth identity. And I also, you know, starting that new school that I started getting invitations to speak all over the world. Um, so that was only a month or two later. And so I kind of started this new identity Yes, I was a student, but also um, starting to travel all over the world speaking as a youth advocate. And so I, it was very clear right away that um, all of a sudden I had an international stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when you were there, did you ever come against people who are sceptical about climate change, who are sceptical about, you know, no, it's all in your head, nothing's, you know, deforestation isn't going to do anything wrong. Did those people actually make themselves known to you? Yes, I definitely had people who had different points of view from um, my schoolmates, which I think was the most difficult for me because, you know, you're in high school, you want to impress your peers. I wasn't really sharing much of what I was doing abroad or politically with my classmates because nobody cared about politics until grade 12, until the last year of school. I remember all of a sudden hearing people talking about global politics in grade 12 and thinking, yes, (laughs) it is interesting. (laughs) But also on the, on the stage, you know, at one time I I was pitted against um, a very well-known right wing um, climate denier. um, And I was in my early twenties and that was a quite an experience. It was, it was before, it was pre-Trump era, of course. And so I wasn't really used to people who would just be on a stage and lie. I just didn't, you know, that was not familiar to me. And I don't think it was familiar to most people at that time. You know, this idea that someone with an audience would just stand there and uh, spew straight up lies. Um, I still was trying to debate this person and um, have a real, you know, argument and discussion. And I realized, you know, very early on in this dis- in this discussion that this person wasn't listening to me. They weren't there to make arguments and have an intellectual engagement. They were just there to try to be the loudest and to try to um, turn the feeling of the audience against me, um, which is something that I think is very much alive today. It's not about arguments. It's about the feeling that the communicator can somehow get the audience to be on their side, no matter what the cost. So it, that was an education. I wouldn't say it was, um, I don't think, I, I think I held my own. I wouldn't say I was trounced, but um, it was an education, you know, and it's definitely served me well as we are now in the Trump era where, um, you know, it's not about uh, the strength of your arguments. It's about the, the, how loud your voice is. In some realms, in some realms. In some realms, yeah, which I suppose it goes back to as well, as you say, like that if, you're, if you've got to lie about, if you've got to lie to get your point across, your point can't be valid, surely. I mean, it just, it's interesting to think about. And I love the title of your podcast, you know, Normal, Not Normal, like what is normal and what we now have normalized in the media and in the public dialogue. It's been definitely a lowering of the bar in terms of what is allowed um, when you are debating in terms of um, the language, the vile language that's now, you know, tolerated in public discourse. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we humans are so adaptable. We, get, we, we, we can get used to, to anything. And so we've allowed um, the kind of 
degeneration of our public discourse. And it's, uh, it's, it's part of it's, it's part and parcel of our problems. I was going to ask, but then, so that's negative stuff that may have come from it. But what were the best outcomes to come from your speech for you personally? Well, the, the best outcomes, I think, was, you know, my exposure to the world, um, the opportunities for myself. Uh, I was invited to be on the Earth Charter Commission. And so that kind of an opportunity, you know, to, to have as a 15-year-old and then work with, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and Rude Lubbers from the Netherlands and Mercedes Sosa, the incredible uh, singer. I mean, it was such a, a, an incredible roster of different people who were on that commission. Um, incredible experiences. Uh, those really have, have shaped me as a person. And I've just, um, I've, you know, some people think, oh, you know, to take that on when you were so young, you know, that must have been such a burden. And to me, it, it's just been such an incredible um, privilege to be able to do this work and to learn so much. Yeah. And do you, do you find as well that being in that position at such a young age, does anything kind of like, do you find that that has in one way, not, not necessarily in a negative way, has tied you to that point in your life? Or is it a case where it's always just been, yeah, that's exactly what I'm about and you've always lived with it? Or has there been a time when you've, I wouldn't say regretted it, but have a time where you've almost tried to play it down a bit to other people? I'd say uh, both are, are very true. It's very astute of you. I think you probably can relate a bit. A little bit, yeah, that's where that came from. <laughs> Yes, I think you know exactly. Um, you know, to have done something that was quite epic uh, at such a young age, um, definitely, I have a certain story that is connected to me, and you know it, that has been an incredible gift. But you know, when I was in my twenties and I was doing all kinds of other things that I felt were you know more current and more interesting, um, definitely, I felt like you know, well, you know, I have done a few other things in the decades since um and then you know flash forward another 10 years you know every decade i have a new relationship with the rio speech because it still is the most compelling narrative of my life um you know now as uh as a mature adult and a parent i realize that i'm lucky to have a story i mean people remember you because of what your story is and i definitely have a narrative and a story that people can remember and that is a gift that is a, a platform I also find it fascinating that of all the things that I have done, all of the projects I've been involved in, the campaigns, the causes, that remains the most powerful one, the most powerful narrative. And I, I find that, you know, I kind of feel like I'm studying it as this, you know, what, you know, why is that? I think that it is because of one of the most powerful forces belonging to human beings, which is love love for our children. And now as a parent, I have a different relationship with that love. I understand why people are so moved when they see, um, you know, a young person, myself, and now Greta Thunberg and her peers, I see why people are so moved. Um, it's because of this innate sense of love that is built into us as human beings for the future. I believe that if we are able to really harness that love and use it in uh, addressing our existential crises of the environment, which are really about a crisis between current and future generations. We've forsaken this trust that we have, that every generation is handed to take care of the world for their children. We've, we've forsaken that this uh, in this iteration of humanity. And so if we are able to really get at that love, I mean, we can 
completely transform our society. There's nothing people love more than their kids. So I think that there are lessons that I'm still learning from the Rio speech. Um, and, you know, now I'm kind of beyond uh, being a bit annoyed that that's all people kind of care about. And now I'm really kind of fascinated by it. And I'm still learning, you know, why it's still so compelling. You've campaigned and you presented TV programs with your dad. So I've got to ask, how was that working so closely with him? And did that change anything between you? Because I know sometimes when Oliver and I have worked together, um, it's obviously different when it's siblings, but is it, uh, what was that? Um, did you see your dad in a new light doing that? Like in a, how he went about his profession? Um, did you learn stuff? Mm -hmm. Did your dad used to turn up in a suit and not tell you he was wearing a tie? Or <laughs> No, my dad doesn't wear ties. <laughs> uh, he's always prided himself on being the hippie professor. So, um, well, great question. You know, um, working with family, it's definitely been something that I've always done and continue to do today. And I... It was a wonderful opportunity that I got to work with my dad, that I continue to work with my dad. Of course, there's a lot of annoying things about being related uh, to, uh, to someone who's so passionate about cause and always got, you know, a million projects on the go. Um, one little story I think might verge on oversharing <laughs> is that I remember <laughs> my dad was working on a feature film documentary and it was about him and he was working with um, this amazing um, filmmaker, his name is Sterla Gunnarsson and they were working together on this film and together they were, consp I was, okay, this is an important part of the story. I was nine months pregnant and I was about to have my first child. <laughs> And I didn't know that these two were conspiring. They wanted to film my child being born. And then they really wanted to get the child's first breath. Like that was the whole, like, they're like, we need to get the shot. What? They wanted the first breath. <laughs> I know, exactly. What? Oh, my God. And so I... <laughs> was very I'm very used to film crews in our house like this is something we grew up with it was just like always some documentary film crew you know banging a hole in the wall with the big boom and you know I mean it was just like always something going on um and uh anyways but I was yeah so I was so nine months pregnant I eventually went into labor and so I was downstairs you know like laboring this is before you go to the hospital and the film crew shows up <laughs> it's just so terrible. So we just got to, we just, we just got a radio mic. We need, we need to put on you before you go anywhere. But seriously, like that is actually probably what they would have done had my sister not intervened. And thank goodness, I was busy, um, you know, actually throwing up in the garden, and as you do when you're in labor. And my sister kicked them out. She just like took the film crew, and she was like, "This is not appropriate." She just kicked them out. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I was so mad and I was so glad that I had, you know, family on my side, um, even though other me family members drove me absolutely nuts and were very inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, it's that time again where we interrupt the show to share some of the questions and voice notes and the did you knows that you've been sending us in this week. And here are some of our favourites. I've got a question from Gabriel Hills from Birmingham, England. What an amazing place. Yes, All right. yes. Uh, my question is, what is your f- most embarrassing moment when you were filming the Harry Potter movies? Okay, so when we were filming the sixth film, I was an AD. I worked on the crew. And we're filming a lot of green screen for a, for a couple of months, you know, when Dumbledore and Harry are crossing the the waters to get to, you know, the bit when what happens to Dumbledore at the end. Not going to spoil it for anyone if they haven't seen it. But we're filming a lot of green screen, which meant you had to keep it spotless. And right at the end of the day, we had one last scene to shoot. I decided to cross the green screen and I had muddy shoes on thus setting us back a good hour because it had to be cleaned off. Not very good when you're an AD and that's what you do. Go on, yours? It would be the time when I let an intern bleach my eyebrows and I lost my eyebrows. That was very embarrassing. That was a great time. Anyway, moving on. I I had a question the other day on on Cameo Calls and that was from uh, Jada Hutto. And she said, do you chew or do you just swallow ice cream? You don't really chew it, do you? You kind of like use your tongue as like a crushing device. I do. It's got its own. It's got its own form of eating, hasn't it? Ice cream. Yeah, you don't chew it. Definitely. (laughs) There you go. There's something to think about. There you go. Is anybody else now sitting, listening to this, looking into space while moving their tongue around in their mouth, thinking, "Do they? Mm, They do that? How you do it?" But yeah, thank you very much for that, Jada. Anyway, we've got a voice note. We do. We do. Hi, I know I wrote it down, but in case you couldn't pronounce it, my name is Sakshi. I'm currently quarantining in a hotel on my college campus because I was exposed to somebody who tested positive for, well, as you mentioned earlier, Oliver, it's a swear word, so I'm not going to say it. I seem fine so far, and I am going to get tested soon. But anyways, while I'm here stuck in this four-walled room, I'm getting really bored of the same food that the hotel has been sending me every day, so I'm kind of making a mental list of all the food that I want when I can finally leave. So my question for you guys is, what is your favorite food or cuisine of all time? Great question there, Zaxi. So, first of all, well done for staying in quarantine and keeping everyone safe. Uh, I hope it's not too boring for you. What is my favourite cuisine of all time? I'm going to go and just say, hands down, Mexican food. Proper Mexican food as well. I find that absolutely unreal. As some of you may have known uh, when we did our last uh, podcast earlier last year, I was actually making, and now I've mastered, making my own tortillas. So I definitely would say Mexican food. Very good, very good. It's actually, I just want to say, hope you're doing absolutely fantastic in those four walls. In the words of Basement Jacks, don't let the walls cave in on you. Uh, I would say 
My favorite type of food, I actually made it yesterday, barbecue. I remember when we were chatting with Hayley Jarsman and he mentioned that. And ever since then, I've thought, what a great cuisine. Brilliant. You can have it any time of day, any time of year. Definitely barbecue. You can't have it for breakfast. Really? Are you honestly telling me you've never had some type of grilled meat for breakfast? Oh, okay, if we're going to go down that You've way. never had steak for breakfast or anything like that? Mm, not really. What? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Right, moving on. Anyway... Now on to the did you know facts and thank you very much for sending these all in. So this one is from Paulina. Hi Oliver, hi James. My name is Paulina, I'm from Mexico and this is my did you know about space but with Spanish intro. So, sabias que zero gravity affects the position of the astronaut's tongue while speaking. So when they return to Earth, they have a different accent but after a while, they speak again as normally did. So, hope you like it. Have a nice day. I love the fact right, that you can come back from space and there's such a thing as a space accent. Do you think it's like... Uh, you know, yeah, whenever they show like dialogue between astronauts and the ground, someone's always taking a long pronounced... Uh, before they start speaking properly. Do you think that's how they... Is that, is that part of the accent? Is that part of the tongue moving around? Uh, I think so. Maybe, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, I really want to get some ast- an astronaut or two on this podcast so we can ask them that question, so don't forget that, Oliver. Okay, I'll just call one right now. Uh, it may take uh, a while for them to pick up. Yep. Right, so we've got another one. It says, hello, James and Oliver, or hello in my language. My name is Angela and I'm from the Netherlands. Do you know that cows moo with regional accents? I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Lots of love, Angela. So does that mean then that like the Dutch cows just stand in the field like moo? She think we're going to make some nice cheese. Moo. You think? And then you've got like the English cows who are like moo, moo. And then you've got like you know the South American cows which are like. I don't know what a South American cow would sound like. Are you? Are you? Um, I think you've been on lockdown too long. I'm just. I'm just merely giving an example. Okay. 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 You do a regional accent of a cow. You are a cow from Scotland. No. 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 I want to know how they came up with this. Did someone go and record different? Ca- Tell you what. If you're near a cow while you're walking today or something, please record it saying moo, and see if see if it sounds like the accent from where you're from or where you are in the world. That's fascinating, isn't it? Very, very good there, Angela. Love it. Wow, that's... Okay, I love that one. That has blown my mind. Thank you very much for that, Angela. I hope you're staying well and safe. And the next one is from Nikki in West Sussex, England. Did you know that it is impossible to hum whilst holding your nose? Oh. <laughs> you almost self-combust. Try it. Try it with me, won't you? Uh, okay. Um, I feel like Katie must have done when she was doing, you know, in our podcast when we talked to Katie Leung about when she was doing the tank dive on the fifth, uh, yeah. on the fourth Harry Potter film. Actually, doing that right now reminded me of the feeling I got with my eyeball. Let's see. Let's see if it pops out. Hang on. Um, oh, ears pops. 
And now on to the my normal section when you guys send in what is your normals at the moment. And this one is from Jade. And she says, my name is Jade and I'm from Northern Ireland. The slang we would use over here to say hello is, what's the crack? What's the crack? I'm a nurse in a hospital and I'm working nights at present. So my life is normal, not normal, because my sleeping pattern is all over the show. But I wouldn't change it because it is a pleasure and so rewarding to help each and every one of my wee patients. Jade, thank you so much for getting contact and thank you so much for doing such an incredible job for everybody. I can't imagine how difficult it is being a nurse right now, but thank you to you and all the other guys and girls who work in healthcare to keeping everybody safe and well. Thank you very much for that. Yes, I completely, completely concur with that. Well, guys, thank you for sending those in. Keep them coming. The email address is normalnotnormalpodcast at gmail.com. That's normalnotnormalpodcast at gmail.com. Or tweet us using the hashtag normalnotnormal and the hashtag didyouknow. And if you're under 18 and sending us a voice note or jingle, and we really, really want to hear your jingles, please get permission from the parents or guardian first. Okay, back to seven. Do you feel like that because of your being so eco-conscious, stuff like that, that you have to avoid, like say, buying a diesel, for example, and you have to have an electric or a, you have to have a, a hybrid or take a bike or use like not use disposable coffee cups or anything like that? Do you feel you have to do that? Or is that just ingrained in you that you wouldn't do it anyway? Absolutely. I, well, both. I mean, I have a visceral reaction to disposable coffee cups um, for many reasons. You know, I just, it's something that uh, we didn't used to do. And now we've invented a way to a special way of wasting. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and then yes, I'm very conscious of um, needing to walk the talk. I mean, how can we advocate for something and then not try to do it ourselves. Of course, there's many things that I do that are very unenvironmental. And up until COVID and, and the pandemic shutdown, um, you know, my carbon footprint from flying um, has abs been absolutely atrocious. And so, you know, there's different rationalizations for our choices that all of us have to have. But, you know, we have to make some deep attempt to, to, to walk our values. Otherwise, you know, how can our children really take us seriously? Yeah, it's quite, 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 quite funny you mentioned about the disposable coffee cup, which is kind of like a newer invention. Like even just like over here, we have, we used to have the milkman. So only until recently, really, like a milkman would come in an electric trolley to drop off milk on your door in glass bottles, which you'd use, you'd then wash them, put them back out and they would take it away. And that would happen every day of the week. And then gradually over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years maybe, that's all been phased out and we're now buying plastic uh, ones from the supermarket. And it's just completely bizarre. Whereas if someone pitched that idea now, I can imagine, I, hear, I remember hearing someone talking about it before and saying, if you were to pitch that idea now but do it on an app, it would be this groundbreaking brand new thing. Yeah, it's just for no reason at all. I can't understand why it's gone away other than probably supermarket prices are cheaper than the dairy. And unfortunately, people are governed by the pocket than they are the, the planet sometimes. Exactly. But how did that come to be? I mean, if you look at our practices from, well, you know, even 30 years ago, we would find our lifestyles were much more, um, mm. you know, had much, much smaller impact on the planet. And it was funny, we were at a, a we were staying at a friend's cabin recently. And um, it's, a, you know, very old fashioned cabin in the woods. And 
one of the items in this cabin was an iron and it was just an actual iron with a wooden handle that you put on the wood stove and it warms up. And my son said, oh, mom, what's this? I said, oh, well, it's an iron. You just put it on the wood stove and then you can iron your clothes. And he said, oh, that is such a good invention. You don't even have to have a cord. It doesn't even need any batteries. <laughs> he, he was just marveling at the genius of this, you know, these things that we used to do that actually make perfectly fine sense. But because of the globalized economy and because of how, you know, we really encouraged all these different um, you know, innovations that will increase uh, capital, we now mm. have a system that it does not make sense. It's far over complicated and uh, it's definitely impacting the planet. Mm. So, so in terms of like looking back to what we used to do, in terms of like looking forward and you spoke about um, being a parent yourself now. So would you, would you be happy if, if your children did what you did at the age of 12? I would, if my kids who are very shy i mean they're very very passionate about the earth but they're also very shy to this you know at this point um if they decided to have a more international to step out on the international stage which is easier or more accessible for most kids today because of social media i mean the platforms that kids can have now are pretty incredible um I, of course i would support them and i would hope that my experience would help inform and, and support them. But it is a different world. And I've, you know, spoken a lot about this with media who've asked me about uh, Greta Thunberg and what she's experiencing and how much our experiences are parallel. Uh, we definitely have parallel experience, but the scale of which she's dealing with is just something that's far beyond anything I had to deal with. And the accessibility between her and the rest of the world, including the trolls, the haters, which are, you know, we didn't have trolls or haters back then, you know, people yeah. still, I think, of course, I had people who disagreed with me, but I think people were still very much respectful of children who were in the media at the time. And now that is not the case. I mean, some of the, some of the violence that has been directed towards her, um, and in my own country of Canada, I am absolutely ashamed of, and I can't imagine what it must be like to be a young person and facing the kind of, yeah, the kind of violent threats that she's received. So it's, it's a different world. And I think we really have to think about that as we all navigate social media, you know, as we all contribute to the forum um, and the discussion that, um, that is allowable today. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. And so do you, do you feel protective over Greta or? I do. I, I do. I, I met her last year and, um, you know, I think when people see her, I think, uh, you know, adults have an instinctive desire to protect her. She's, um, you know, she, she's very small physically and, you know, I mean, she's dwarfed by the crowds that surrounds her. And I think that this is her, her, her portrayal of, I mean, she seems very vulnerable, is very compelling. And then when I actually spoke with her and I talked with her and I realized how powerful she is, I mean, how much self, um, how much inner strength she has. It's just this, she's this incredible warrior. She's this incredible hero who is at once someone you want to reach out and protect and someone who you can see has this incredible power. Um, and that's, you know, her power is why she is so hated by so many people. 
but um, you know, her representing future generations that should be protected is part of her appeal. So yes, I, I feel very protective of Greta at the same time as knowing that she is a warrior and uh, she very much is following her path. Mm, mm. And in terms of, like you say, she's she's the one protecting and leading leading the charge, I suppose, for future generations. Do you do you find it frustrating that here we are, thirty years after you kicked all this off, that we're still talking about it? it's like the same conversation on repeat? Absolutely, it's uh, it's quite shocking and saddening to me to see Greta and her peers, you know, marching in the streets and finally turning people's attention towards the environment again. I myself, you know, I, I definitely didn't kick off youth activism with the environment. Um, so I definitely wasn't, was not the first and there's been so many voices and Greta too is part of this continuum. But it is frustrating. It's really frustrating, you know, we're a part of this continuum. But, you know, when I was uh, advocating for change as a youth, we were trying to stop climate change. Now we can't stop climate change. We missed that window. So we didn't do it. And people say, oh, you know, there's always deadlines with environmentalists. You know, the end of the world is always coming. And I, you know, I can relate a bit, you know, if you say the end of the world is coming and then Tuesday comes and, it, you know, we're still here. I think that's one of the biggest challenges is because especially in the West, our life is pretty darn good. Like, you know, and especially with, you know, all our gadgets, we really can just live in this kind of oblivion. Um, but for people around the world who are living, you know, in uh, climate change zones, uh, places of, of, of climate strife and the hurricane alley and who are in flood zones, floodplains, um, the chaos is here. We're, we've, we're, we're in it right now. Give us three things that everyone can do to support the environment. Great question. Well, you know, we can't necessarily all speak to the UN or, you know, organize. Uh, well, I think we all can organize, actually. But um, when we think about impact, I think I think we, we get overwhelmed by the scope of something like climate change. But one thing we can directly control and, and something we can do is look at our own lives and control our own actions. So we need to think about reducing our um, carbon, the pollution that we put into the air, and that means looking at our transportation as well as our the food that we eat. If we just reduce our meat and dairy intake a few meals a week, that has a huge impact. We can really uh, reduce our carbon that we put into the atmosphere because cows put a lot of uh, carbon and methane into the atmosphere, which is warming the planet. Back in our own histories, we definitely didn't used to eat meat every day. That was a that was a treat that was special. But now, now we do, and it's having a huge impact on the planet. So those kinds of personal choices, they matter not just for um, the earth, but also for our bodies. I mean, we'll find that what's good for the earth is actually good for yourself as well, mm. um, your mental well-being. Cycling to work um, is a lot better for your mental well-being than um, driving to work, getting stuck in traffic and getting all kinds of, into all kinds of road rage situations. Um, so transport your own transportation, um, your diet, those are two simple things to look at. And what you do personally really does get political because apparently what your neighbor does is far more influential to what you do than what you know you should be doing. Yeah. And so when you take an action, when you, you know, bring your own coffee mug somewhere, when you cycle to work, other people see that. And that is part of creating a new social norm. 
Maybe I should wait until that phone, my phone stops ringing. It's the uh, it's the meek conglomerates. They've heard you speaking, Seven. They're uh... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> scary. You know that our our podcast is called Normal, Not Normal. So I thought I'd ask you, what is the most normal thing about you? The most normal thing about me? Well, that is all about context. (laughs) But I have to say, as I was preparing my kids' lunches today and I was just thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to give them for lunch? It was probably (laughs) one of the most mundane, normal things that I experienced. I'm sure there's parents all over the world that are thinking, oh my God, I got to make another kid's lunch. I have no idea what to make. That's a pretty normal, I, I think normal, and we can talk about privilege and all that, but it was felt pretty, pretty mundane to me today. Yeah, definitely. But what does a normal day look for you? You say that you took your, your kids to school and all that kind of stuff this morning, but equally, your normal outlook from your window is absolutely amazing. Thank you. Well, I love the life that I have here on Haida Gwaii, uh, especially during the pandemic. I haven't been flying around the world being an activist, but uh, we live in a community of about 900 people. Uh, We live in a Haida community. So it's an indigenous people who've lived here for 14,000 years. And we have an incredible an incredible front yard. We have a, a, a an ocean that provides. Right now, it's October, so the salmon are returning to the streams, their natal streams, to lay their eggs and to die. And so the inlet is full of salmon. And often, I'll just see salmon jumping. And so the other day, the kids had to go to the dentist, and there's a dentist in the nearby community. It's a 15 minute drive. So uh, I knew that there were salmon jumping in front of the dentist. I kind of heard that from the day before. So I loaded my skiff into the truck. My husband has a truck. <laughs> it's not diesel, but it, it is gas and we're going to get we're going to change that out. But uh, I loaded the skiff into the back of the truck and then the next day I picked up the kids early from school. We went to the dentist, they got their teeth cleaned, and then as soon as their teeth were cleaned, we just drove to the there's a little place you can launch a, a skiff and so we launched the skiff. And we casted and we caught six coho. And it was just so epic and amazing because we were right off of the road. Like the, the village of Queen Charlotte is right there. And about like 20 feet out, we uh, were surrounded by all these salmon that were jumping and we were, we were catching them. Amazing. But yeah, it felt pretty special. Is there anything what you would say isn't normal about you? I'm kind of obsessed with um, fish eggs, <laughs> especially right now because it's it's uh, October and the coho are spawning. Um, and so when the salmon get close to the rivers, the eggs inside the females' bodies, you know, are they're totally big and ready to be, you know, ready to to go. And so they're absolutely incredible and they're incredibly delicious. And uh, because I have Japanese heritage as well, of course, uh, the Japanese in me absolutely adores seafood as well. Um, but I'm I'm pretty obsessed at this time. And I'm just, you know, like following fishermen and kind of <laughs> trying to snoop around and see if they're getting, you know, throwing away any uh, fish body parts that I could salvage. And 
you know, I'm posting online, hey, anybody, you know, yeah. if you don't want your fish eggs, I'll buy them. And I'm kind of obsessed with fish eggs. <laughs> but if you look at, you know, my family and the context, it's, oh, that's, that's totally normal. That's really justified um, to be so passionate about, uh, about fish roe. That's normal, not normal. <laughs> So I've got quick fire questions, but they're pretty simple questions. But the first one is, what is your favorite song? Hmm. The first idea that comes to mind is um, uh, the Greeting the Day song. Uh, it's a Haida song, and it's very beautiful. And uh, earlier uh, last week, I was at a canoe steaming. So this is uh, when someone carves a canoe out of a tree they um, steam it open once it's you know all carved out. They steam it so that it opens and it becomes more of a vessel rather than you know its original log form. And uh, it was the first time that you know I'd been to a community event since COVID, so it was really kind of very overstimulating to see all kinds of people and to witness this great great happening. Um, but people were singing together and they were singing Haida songs, and it was just. It was so powerful. That definitely, I haven't even heard it, but I know that will definitely win the quiz for best song that someone's mentioned. What is your favorite film? One of the most influential films uh, for me was, of course, uh, Dances with Wolves. Um, it was when I was young and very impressionable, but it was a very uh, hugely influential, I think, for the movie industry. Yeah. And uh, it's something that I've, uh, also, I remember actually when I was in the movie theater, there was a small earthquake not longer after the buffalo scene. <laughs> so it was really <laughs> exciting. <sighs> I think I know the answer to this one already, but what is your favorite food? You do know the answer to that. Yes, yeah, it's seasonal. And right now it's, oh, it's fish eggs. Yes. <laughs> And finally, is there any movie or TV quote which you would think, which you would say every day? Wakanda forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got. I do. I do have. I do have one more to to hang on to that. To, like one more. Uh, one more question to go on to that. If you could go back and send one, what, say one thing to your twelve-year-old self, what would it be? If I could say one thing to my twelve-year-old self, I would say. I'm proud of you. Love your 40-year-old stuff. <laughs> no, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Seven, thank you so much for, for this. I've really, really enjoyed it and learning so much more about, obviously, environmental issues and everything else, but also more about yourself as well. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Wonderful to get to know you two as well. And I'm a big fan. Congratulations on what you do and also on doing this podcast. It's a really great conversation. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was something else, wasn't it? That was possibly one of the most engaging. Wow, I'm blown away by even the dog is as well. Even the dog's excited by that one. Well, it was amazing when she was speaking. I was actually thinking in my own head of things that I do, things I've got in my lifestyle which are convenient, which aren't necessarily benefiting the environment or anything like that. So it's amazing that it's very, very rare that you walk away from a conversation. Certainly, I do, and I walk away from a conversation going. I'm, I'm going to have to address that because that's not right. Yeah, um, I know that when we spoke to Bonnie Wright last last season, on the Double Trouble season, 
I can remember, Bonnie, after that, a lot of the reaction we got was from people saying that they'd started taking their own water bottle instead of buying a plastic water bottle. Just little things like this really do make a difference. So I really hope and I really encourage everybody to try this and if they're trying it to carry it on because it is something that once you get used to it it's so easy to do isn't it but since seven was speaking to us from canada i thought i could do a few did you knows about canada did you know canada has the largest coastline in the world yep so if you were to walk 20 kilometers a day mm -hmm. it would take you 33 years to finish mm -hmm. strolling around the shoreline. Wow. Am I right in saying as well it's got one of the longest, straightest borders in the world as well? Yes, with the United States. Correct. Yeah. And here's yeah. another did you know. You think about the North American continent. Yes. You can call it that. North American continent. The geographical center of North America mm -hmm. is in a city what we've been to called Regina. Regina, Saskatchewan. That's the Home one. Home of the Rough Riders. I know it. Right. So that, if you, who would have thought that the centre of North America is there? So are they all your did you knows today? I have one more, which is, you know that we call the season autumn. Autumn. We do. But did you know that it used to be called fall in the UK? Is that why they still call it fall in the States? That is true, because we didn't call it autumn until the 18th century when we started using the French word l'automne. Okay, what's this got to do with Canada? Well, I'm kind of trying to work this back in. And before it was called autumn and before it was called fall, it was called harvest. So I'll let you figure out why. But did you know Canada has some amazing harvest times? Wow. That is really, really poor segue. Anyway, guys, thank you very much for joining us this week. I've been James Phelps. He has, and I've been Oliver Phelps. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, liking the podcast and just really enjoying what we're doing, hit either or both the subscribe button, the like button. And if you really, really, really like it, leave us a review. Thank you once again to Seven for sharing her insights. And we'll see you next time. Normal Not Normal is a stable production.